From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Andre Perry of the Brookings Institute joins us to discuss how we reconcile President Trump's recent remarks about certain immigrants and America's moral mission to not forget the least of these. That's coming up on the public morality. Welcome to the public morality. Now, Senators Cotton and Perdue have challenged the notion that he said as whole. And I believe there's some reporting out there that White House officials say that Purdue and Cotton think that he said as house countries as opposed to as whole countries. Uh, let me say they're wrong. I can tell you explicitly they are wrong. And let me also say, is that their defense? That as house is acceptable, as whole, he would never say? Come on. Uh, to think that the President of the United States would refer to any country on earth as an S house country. Uh, for goodness sakes, what does that say? That was Illinois Senator Dick Durbin speaking with CNN's Jake Tapper. There has been a firestorm of comments since President Trump allegedly offered his thoughts on people immigrating to the U.S. from African countries, Haiti, and El Salvador. My guest, Andre Perry of the Brookings Institute, believes that underneath those comments is a dearth of morality that is missing from many public policy discussions as it relates to those who are disenfranchised. Perry serves as the David M. Rubenstein Fellow Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Andre Perry, welcome to the Public Morality. Hi, how are you? In your piece uh, on the Brookings website, uh, you wrote in response to the President's alleged comments about immigration, Quote, the reaction in media circles was swift. New York Times columnist David Leonhardt wrote, time to say it, Trump is a racist. And you followed up by saying that you agreed with Leonhardt. So, so my question uh, to begin this uh, conversation, uh, how, do you, how are you defining racism? Uh, what does it mean to be a racist? And how might those differ from what we also define as prejudice? Well, um, um, racism for me is a lot about policy. Um, when I talk about how to develop cities and, and education policy, I'm talking about how, how do governments um, effectively impact citizens. And, and for me, his policies burden some and privileges others. And so uh, going back to the federal discrimination lawsuit um, levied against him in which he settled um, to comments about um, um, certain immigrant populations as being uh, murderers and um, criminals, drug dealers, um, um, to the comments around immigration policy, his biases have a direct impact on policy. Um, I mean, the, the idea that you're going to build a wall is uh, uh, symbolic in, in, in a lot of ways, but it's going to, um, um, if enacted, would waste mil billions of dollars 
um, of revenue that could be spent on um, on students, on housing, on a number of fronts. But he would rather distribute and allocate those funds um, to appease a populace that clearly um, needs a lot of education around the nature of citizenship, membership um, in this country. And so um, for me, it, it is about the exercise of power that um, results in policies that burden some and privileges others. Now, I, I could also hear uh, some of our listeners um, reflectively responding to what you just said uh, by saying, you know, we've had other presidents who who uh, uh, harbored racist beliefs. Uh, Harry Truman comes to mind. Certainly we have Nixon on tape saying some rather racist uh uh, uh, comments as well as Lyndon Johnson. So if indeed Trump meets the racist criteria that you outlined, how does he differ from those other examples that I just referenced? And I'm sure that, and there are others we can just go down the list. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think there's a, a major difference. I think Trump falls in line with a long legacy of those who have oppressed um, black and brown people. Um, you know, um, uh, while Clinton... Of saying the black national anthem, um, more black men went to prison, state and federal um, 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 prison, under his watch. Um, Did his policies um, have a uh, result in racist um, um, policies? Um, Yes, of course. And so um, the only aberration that I've seen is Obama, and certainly some of his policies um, had a disparate impact on, on black and brown people. Um, but the aberration in the, the presidential legacy around racism is Obama. Um, and so we shouldn't be shocked um, by things that are aired. I, you know, I, I think he is um, probably the most crass president um, um, that we've heard simply because we don't necessarily know on what goes on in the Oval Office. And, um, and so the last eight years prior, we had a very upright um, uh, president who, um, at least that we know, did not conduct themselves in, 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 in such a um, crass manner. But um, as you said, um, um, Nixon, Lyndon Johnson, and others um, certainly w- weren't um, – I would say progressive um, voices on, around race relations by any means, um, and so I, you know, I'm not one of these these folks that are, I mean I'm, I'm shocked. No, but um, Trump is, um, and his views um, um, are dangerous for black and brown people in particular. How do you uh, di- differentiate uh, uh, between? let's say, some of the inflammatory things that come off of uh, Twitter and, you know, the, the actual policies. Because one, one of my observations, sir, is that each, each day or each week, um, I think it's fair to say, that, 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 that there, there's something that the president says that gets people focused on something he said, and there's a tendency to ignore maybe some of the policies that you just referenced that are harmful to, to certain groups, disenfranchised in particular. So how do you differentiate between the two, and where do you generate your focus? 
Well, I, I, I definitely gener, uh, generate my focus on policies um, um, that, um, that are enacted or those that are retracted. Um, the, the, the Title IX guidance, for instance, um, in an era of Weinstein was um, um, uh, what is dangerous for women. So um, while um, um, he is certainly saying bombastic things, his um, secret in this case, the Secretary of Education um, rescinded um, the um, the dear colleague letter that um, provided a, a, a little bit a more layer of protection for women. Um, so I'm clear that policies matter, but his voice matters as well. Um, what he does in the public sphere matters. Um, he is not um, a, a quote unquote regular citizen. His words um, are um, recorded um, as a, a public statement um, from the highest office in our land. And so um, what we, we have to pay attention to bo both the bombast and the policy. And so it can be a distraction, but we should also see it as, um, um, as real, relevant um, perspective on the country um, coming from the President of the United States. And so um, there is uh, policy and there's um, Twitter talk, but um, his Twitter talk matters, and, and we should hold him accountable for that. I mean, you sort of touched on it, but I, I want to follow up ever so slightly. So how then, sir, would you respond to those um, – who would say specifically about the, the, the comments about Haiti, African countries, and um, along with El Salvador, uh, well, the president is just conveying what many of us feel, and he, he's not interested in the political correctness. How, how do you respond to those type of charges? I'm sure you've heard them. Yeah, and one, um, someone who feels that way, I would challenge their thinking on why they feel that way. Um, where did that come from? Um, what um, stereotypes and biases um, did you learn at somewhere along your life, and what policies supported that learning? Um, these thoughts that we have don't come out of nowhere. They, they are generated um, by not just um, um, bar talk or locker room talk. They're generated from our policies. Remember, um, pr prior to 1965, um, we essentially privileged folks who we deemed our social relatives in immigration, meaning if you were from England, Western Europe, you had a much easier time getting here. And the, and the biases um, that came um, that supported that, uh, those policies um, are rooted in systemic oppression. That um, we just didn't um, think that um, 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 Haiti is a bad country. This comes from long-standing wars with um, some of our allies. It's not coincidence that, for instance, that, for instance, that um, Haiti is the, the, the first um, uh, country to, um, to um, kick out its, its colonists. Um, and so there's always been a resentment to a black country um, um, seeking revolution um, and freedom. And so um, these these ideas just don't come from it. They come from history. And so when people say 
things flippantly that 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 he's just saying what uh, common people think. Well, we really need to to do a deep examination of our our educational system here. If people think um, these um, countries are 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 wasteland are, and or other expletives. Uh, um, um, that they really don't know their history. They really don't know um, the, the the policies that supported their thoughts. And so there's an educational issue there when people just say, oh, oh it's okay to use this loose language. Um, no, it's not. It's not accurate, and um, it's hateful, and it has consequences. You know, you know, one of the ironies when I read your piece that's currently right now on the uh, Brookings Institute website uh, it was a real irony that, that struck me um, because the, the, the president talked about uh, it, you know, the allegation um, that um, he, why don't the United States get, get more people from Norway? Yeah. Well, the irony to that is, um, and, I'm, and your piece really struck me, was when you, con- when, you, when you conduct polling, Norway, the people of Norway consistently poll among the happiest, if not the happiest, of any country in, in, in the industrial world. And one of the reasons, and this is where your piece comes in, uh, they, because the attention of policy that pays attention that does not ignore the disenfranchised. And so I, want, I wondered how you saw that in terms of the policy work that you're doing at Brookings and what you think makes for a, a, a happy culture? Well, you know, I, I think that um, um, when you're talking about Norway and universal health care, um, people are happy because the policies um, undergird society. And, um, and the, but the reason why a lot of people want to be here is, is because of the belief, and, and there is some facts um, um, that support this, that in America there is opportunity to grow and to to blossom to self-actualize. Um, however, um, President Trump would um, do himself a favor by mimicking Norway and and shoring up um, the the disenfranchised in in America and making them as happy where they would not want to to, to leave. Um, and so. Um, but, but again, um, or I, I should say that um, people who come here often are those um, w- um, that have advanced skills and knowledge, and they want to parlay those into greater opportunity. Um, and so um, his comparison of Norway and, and countries where there are people of color is, is um, bl- as blatantly racist, and for folks to weasel their way out of that argument really aren't um, holding themselves accountable. It is rooted in the stereotype that um, black and brown folks aren't of the same value uh, as white folks, and, th- and, and that is the heart of that kind of comment. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Andre Perry. He is the David M. Rubenstein Fellow, Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institute, located in Washington, D.C. So, Andre, we touched on this just ever so slightly, but I'd like to have you expand on it. Do you worry that, especially with this president, there's a tendency to 
latch on to the immediacy of the comment du jour, and that come that could come at least at the expense of the long-term policy considerations that you're concerned with as well? Oh, yeah. I, I do think we attach ourselves um, to comments and and not policy enough. But again, like, like, like I said, um, um, words matter because they often reflect a policy perspective. Um, it's, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I, uh, Trump's comments often detract him from his own policy agenda if he has one. Um, but in, in this country where demographics are clearly shifting, I see his comments and his policies as trying to slow down those demographic shifts that are occurring all across the country, particularly in cities. Um, and it is in cities that um, you see a, a great deal of innovation and effort to become more inclusive. And so um, much of the comments um, and policies are trying to push back um, uh, the the, the changing demographics, um, trying to scare um, 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 people, uh, um, immigrants and Latinos from not voting. Um, and clearly some of these tactics are um, uh, long-term voter suppression efforts. And so, yes, we should keep our eye on the ball, so to speak. But let, uh, let's be clear that much of this hateful commentary is to energize a base so that other elected official, officials can then forward a, um, a, a racist agenda that sees its population dwindling every single day. And some of the attitudes that young people have are just not in line um, with old guard con um, um, r um, racist conservatism. Um, when you look at Alabama, certainly black women, black men and, and also, and black cities stepped up to the plate. Um, also, millennials um, who consider themselves Republic, Republicans, um, um, uh, millennials, also um, um, did not vote along, uh, along party lines, um, did not want to vote for a racist, sexist, alleged pe uh, pedophile. Um, there, there's... Um, some roads you just won't cross. And so I, I'm actually hopeful um, um, that um, some of the demographic shifts you're seeing um, um, will sort of o overcome these hateful policies that are targeting um, um, the, the change in demographics and the shift in perspective. Well, you mentioned the demographics, and um, and I think about the history uh, of, of America. And one of, one of the um, tragic pieces of American history has always been that the country has been willing to sort of muddy the waters on race in order to ignore that larger issue of class. And I, I think specifically about that was sort of the argument to get poor white Southerners to fight for the Confederacy, because without them you don't have an army. You have the fusion movement here in North Carolina that combined poor whites and poor blacks that got put down violently. So, but in urban cities, if those attitudes are changing and people are uniting around class issues and being disenfranchised, that that's a potential real game changer. So, is it so? In, in, in lieu of that, you muddy the waters on race to get people 
antagonistic who should not be antagonistic with each other. Yeah, you know, uh, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of conversation around poor white folk not voting um, um, with their interests um, or voting against their true interests. Um, and, and, and I agree with that. Uh, um, eventually, people are going to learn that um, um, low-income, um, undereducated whites um, share some of the same struggles as low-income, undereducated black folks, whether you're talking about folks in rural um, communities or in urban communities. And the, the, the thing that um, keeps them going is this notion of at least I'm better than um, black folks. Um, when people start to see that, no, you're in the same boat, that um, many of the policies, particularly this tax bill, um, is more about a focus on rich people, not on low-income folks. Um, they will see, oh, maybe um, there's, uh, I can break from my party or I should break from my party. Maybe um, the inflaming rhetoric around race does little for me. I do think that that day is coming where people will awaken themselves and say, hey, you know, wasn't this tax bill supposed to be for me? Weren't we supposed to have an infrastructure plan that's built for me? Uh, you, I, I, I voted for you, Trump, because I saw President Obama, quote unquote, giving black people things. Weren't you supposed to do something for me? Um, when the dust settles and folks see that, oh, I do need health care. Um, the opioid crisis isn't a matter of uh, criminality. It's a matter of uh, a, 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 a medical issue, a one of um, um, that we should treat in terms of a medical fashion and, and, and use prevention, not um, police and jails. When, I do think when the dust settles, um, people are going to see that we're, we're in this together, so to speak. And when that day comes, oh, you're going to see a, a true populist movement of, of working class, low-income folks, um, needing affordable health care um, or free health care, so to speak, um, needing free college. Because if, if low-income folks don't have basic um, services afforded to them, it's going to be, um, it, well, it already is, more and more difficult to do better than your parents did. Um, folks see that all the time. And so... Um, the chronically unemployed, the, um, those in rural America where um, automation has changed the, their, their employment prospects. Um, th these things um, need plans and, uh, um, and policy um, that I think, if effective, would galvanize both poor whites, poor blacks, Latinos, and others because um, – you know the, uh, you know the. I, I do think that um, uh, Trump has revealed himself now, um, and all he has now are simplistic race baiting um, statements 
there isn't coherent policy that impacts the people who voted for him. So he's in trouble. And a lot of these efforts are, in a sense, a last gasp. Um, now, what Democrats do is vitally important. I, do, I hope um, that they're not sitting on the sidelines saying, um, um, no, 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 don't do this, look at Trump, uh, that they're actually um, proposing policy that um, will uh, mobilize Americans particularly low-income, working-class folks. Um, because what we learned from the previous administration, um, being the party of no doesn't work. At the end of the day, people want policies that's going to change their housing outlook, that's going to change their education outlook, that, that's going to um, give them the kind of health care for that, that child who, or that adult who is disabled. Um, it's not going to be buck up and, and pull yourself up. It's going to, we're going to need policy that um, really bolsters um, people and their humanity. Uh, you, you remind me of the King quote when he said that it's hard to tell someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps that have no shoes. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and you, you, you go in, in, in cities and in rural America, you see good folk wanting to work. And when they hear an infrastructure bill, for instance, yeah, I would vote for somebody who would push that too. But it's, but if they don't deliver, you should change your vote. Um, because, uh, you know, at some point, you've got to hold your party accountable. And the bombast of Trump is not delivering um, on the policy front. And, and, and that's clear. But um, it is an effort, I think, to solidify his, uh, his 2020 prospects um, because right now that's pretty much all he has is um, running um, on his popularity amongst a, a segment of voter, not necessarily on policy wins um, that will bring real dollars to these communities. You know, you also wrote um, in your piece, I'll come back to it if I may, uh, quote, our measurements should not burden the people who need good policy. For instance, advancements in data collection have enabled us to see disparities between various groups. But our social lenses often have us look upon disparities as deficits. Say more about that, yeah. if you will. Specifically, I, want, I'm, I was really interested in, in what you call deficit thinking. Yeah, you know, and this was a, a, some commentary specifically for universities, think tanks, researchers who are collecting great data and are doing wonderful things and looking at the inequalities along race, class, and gender. Um, and many of our analyses show that there are differences between black, brown, and Asian, and white Americans. Uh, un unfortunately, when we show those differences, we often see black and brown people as being problems needing to be fixed, as deficits, so to speak. And we invest in solutions. Um, that to fix those problems and deficits. The problem is 
that we in, we give investments towards white folks generally to quote unquote fix black and brown folks. And so, um, um, and, and when those investments are actually the things um, uh, black and brown folk need um, to change their outcomes. And so, um, when I look at research in general, um, we have got to understand that data is narrative, that we contribute to this perspective that people of color, Haitians, um, um, black people, brown people in particular, are not problems needing to be fixed. Um, we are people um, that bring brilliance, that bring faults like every other um, group, but we do need capacity building um, in, um, in order to improve our plots in life, something we, have, um, we rarely do. We don't go and say, for instance, um, in school reform, hey, schools are not achieving like we would like them to. Let's bolster them and empower them with the resources um, to recreate, meaning those who are in, or who are working in schools in those districts. No, we say, okay, we'll give resources to an outside group who, have the, who already has the capacity to then fix low-income and brown um, um, communities. And, and you can go down the line, you know, the controversy around who got the electri ele uh, electricity contract in Puerto Rico, uh, same difference. Um, we, we, can, we can look to um, in how we invest based on our perception of who's a problem. And, and researchers here, I'm at the Brookings Institution, we've got to start looking at assets, what people bring to the table. And when we start to show that um, black and brown communities, um, immigrant communities have assets, then we're more than willing. And we get excited, in fact, um, to trust resources to change conditions, to the, um, for them to change their own conditions. But as long as the gaze, uh, as long as the gaze is negative, or uh, or we have a, a deficit perspective, then we will continue to burden them, or try to fix them, to exclude them, to put walls around them. Um, and, as a uh, quote-unquote fix. No, these are not fixes. This, this is just plain, all um, outright exclusion and discrimination. Uh, in your work, uh, do, do you feel that the, the importance, because you touched on, on your piece, did you, the importance of, of, of virtue, adding virtue to, to, to the yeah. equation, to the narrative, is lacking uh, to a certain degree, and is yeah. there too much emphasis, in your view, just placed on the raw data so you have a linear out, a more linear outcome? Well, I, I, used, uh, I used to be a school um, uh, leader. I ran four charter schools, and one of the questions I used to receive uh, uh, all the time was, how do you close the black-white achievement gap, or can you close the black-white achievement gap? And I, I, used, I could not stand that question, and, and I started answering with, well, the fastest way to, uh, to close the black-white achievement gap is actually to stop educating white people. <laughs> and they get a, a chuckle. And I said, well, but we would never do that for obvious reasons. But what we will do is fire 
a, a bunch of black women teachers, will expel a bunch of students, suspend a bunch of students, and do all kind of nefarious things to close a gap. The, the question has never been, um, um, can you close a gap, is how you do it. Um, the, the, one of the biggest misnomers in, um, in the research world and in the policy world is saying that you're data-driven. No, we should always be community-driven and use data to empower communities. And so, again, if you have a deficit perspective, you will do all kind of nefarious things to fix them. And you'll always end up in the same place because it's the same framework of you not trusting um, these these problems. Now, is is this uh, how is your, in your last answer? How is that related to what you also talked about in your pieces, institutional silence? Uh, yeah, you know what's interesting to me. I look at um, different institutions, um, universities. Uh, economic development organizations, schools, um, think tanks, and I'm I'm looking at them as this um, president um, spews such hateful, abhorrent, disgusting language, and they say nothing, you know, not even a tweet. Um, and you, at some point, you start saying, you know. I'm complicit in this behavior. You know, people don't get away with this kind of behavior without assistance in mass. Yes, there, there's a lot of voters um, who continuous, continually um, support Trump. But those of us in um, the, the academic community, those of us in the, the business community, in the education community, we cannot afford to be complicit. We need to hear the voices um, because um, we don't see when we are indeed next on that list. Um, when, he, when he talked about African countries, the first thing I, I thought, well, I'm actually African. I mean, I'm a, a citizen here. But my ancestry is African. Um, and remember, the, what, how we treat immigrants is related to how we treat the, how we've treated historically the majority of Americans in this country. People forget that blacks, women were members of society, but they didn't, weren't afforded um, full citizenship till much later. And so we should pay attention to this rhetoric because we were in that same position. Um, and so, to, 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 to call folks who are productive um, members of our community that prove themselves over time, who we should not kick them out. We should naturalize as soon as possible because they've already proven themselves um, to be members of community. To, to, to not advance their citizenship is to forget our history in denying people a right um, and denying and, and our history of denying people their humanity. It's, in, it's insane. It's, 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 it's insane. That's why we need people to speak out, not a, um, necessarily against Trump, 
because this is bigger than Trump. This is about the presidency. The presidency has no business ushering um, hatred, um, winking at um, uh, torch-toting Klansmen and neo-Nazis. Had no business um, uh, um, slandering entire countries and a, a continent, if you will. Um, th- this is not just presidential. This is, um, I mean, this is so base. There's a, a very um, few words for this. Um, it's so um, um, beyond what a, a president is supposed to be. But yet we are supposed to uphold ideals of that presidency. So folks have got to remind Trump and his cabinet. Um, because I'm also looking at cabinet members who stand in silence. Um, at some point, and, and this would I meant by um, getting back to morality, we can always create economic arguments for inclusion. We can always make sort of political, sort of ex- expedient, politically expedient um, arguments to do something right or, or to do something negative. But at some point, you've got to say, is this a good thing? Is, 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 is this virtuous? Um, and so my piece that was released around Martin Luther King Day was – was also a call to talk, let's talk about morality um, and goodness in policy. Well, Something me, that we're um, slowly but surely forgetting about. Well, let me and ask I'll, you. Let me ask you something right there on the morality piece, um, because one of the things, uh, especially toward the end of his life, and that's why you know was what he was working on when he got killed. When, you know, Martin Luther King was in Memphis um, helping sanitation workers. So it's, it's part of your mission, you know, in, 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 you know, in the data collection and the public policy is to also put a face on the mission. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, people forget about economic justice and what MLK tried to do. And during a time when billionaires are having more and more say, in, in, pub, in public life, more and more control. Um, I, 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 I'm constantly reminded every time I see a Trump power that public space is dominated more and more by um, billionaires putting their name on things in, 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 in public um, um, space. Um, we've got to return to public virtue. Um, we have got to return to this principle that we're all in, to, in this together, that we share a fate as compatriots. Um, folks talk about patriotism, but really patriotism is a belief in a mother country. You can have differences. Um, you can even be um, technically a non-citizen, but you share a fate um, um, with your countrymen. Um, we've got to go back to that, um, and, um, and and more importantly, we do need to mobilize folks who do not have billions of dollars. We have got to mobilize people um, around their vote. Um, I was encouraged by what happened in Alabama um, because it showed that um, you can have a dominant framework 
um, a dominant um, white and I'll and 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 a framework littered with racism, and you can overcome that if you are mobilized. And so there is a future um, for labor in this country. I know there's a lot of talk of, about the erosion of labor, um, and there are some upcoming Supreme Court cases that will challenge that. But the need for mobilization is 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 stronger than ever that folks without means, without money, who aren't part of a corporate organization that gives them um, um, the benefits that we should all be afforded, um, there's a need there for structures and for um, leadership to mobilize them. And and so I'm I'm fortunate that um, I work in a place that allows me um, to insert the voice of folks who need um, data, who need um, information, who need and also need to, to, to um, their voices validated. It's, it's interesting that um, when I came to Brookings in August, I um, I was formally charged to, to to work on cities, and I'm doing a lot of work on majority black cities. But on occasion, I have. I have a responsibility, I exercise that responsibility of um, making sure the voiceless um, has a champion that I will talk about injustice plainly um, and clearly, that we can say, oh, no, that policy was pretty racist, and that's okay, because that's the, uh, uh, that's the talk. Um, that's really a current uh, going on in communities. People are suffering um, um, in, in cities and in towns, in rural America as well. People are suffering. And, um, and they hear about the, the, the country booming. We're at a, uh, um, a state of full employment. Um, but the reality is that full employment doesn't mean much to a black man in Baltimore. It doesn't mean much to undereducated white men in, um, in rural Ohio that the economy has passed um, many people. And so those folks need a voice. They thought it was Trump, and clearly it's not. And so um, these, the, the institutions that have power and leverage and sway, we've got to remind ourselves at times that we have a, got a we have a responsibility, and it's akin to that responsibility, shouldered by Martin Luther King Jr. Well, then, um, and so I, I I I take ownership of that every day. I have a a, a poster of MLK during um, the March on Washington, um, and I look at it every day, and I'm reminded that that this is part of my job to make sure that those who are not counted um are andre perry i want to thank you so much sir for being on the public rally day we very much appreciated your uh important and prophetic voice hey that was andre perry stay tuned for my closing remarks
And now for my closing remarks. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Help me, please. But he winds up knocking me back down on my knees. No, there have been times that I thought I couldn't last for long. But I know change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Sometimes words are inadequate to describe the situation. We need music. We need Sam Cooke to remind us that a change is indeed going to come because that is the nature of democratic societies. Cooke sung those words at a time when black people enjoying the benefits offered by the Constitution were questionable at best. The change in Cooke's song had yet to materialize. So, too, is the moment that we're currently living. But the history of democratic republic is not a stagnant concept. It is dynamic, cyclical, and unfortunately, as frustrating as it can be sometimes, it represents the only way to authentically pursue 
that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast version, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) Thank you.